this is gonna be good. It's gonna be a good night. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, when when three or more gathered, we will have shenanigans. That's for sure. Oh gosh, <laughs> shenanigans will be had by all. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Achieving Christian Thought. Thanks for joining us. Again, just a reminder, if you want to interact with us, you can uh, go to our Facebook page, Achieving Christian Thought Podcast, or visit our website, theactpod.com. Um, as always, I am joined by Zach and Robert. Hola. Hey, what's going on? And so I think tonight we're going to do something just a little bit different. We were going to pivot and kind of talk about uh, some famous characters from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that should be pretty interesting. So yep. Zach and Robert, I will let y'all take it away. All right. All right. So, uh. Like he said, we're going down the road of sharing some uh, some of our favorite stories from Scripture. So this is kind of a biography night on the podcast. But uh, for this episode, we are each picking a biblical figure that we admire, we love, or maybe just fascinates us. But um, I'll start this off. And I'll share the story, and then Zach can pick up with the person he's chosen. But... Um, now, this is the, w- one of the, the big players, but I couldn't resist doing this person. Um, resist. Resist. Okay, then I'll pick someone else right now <laughs> on the spot. No, but uh, <laughs> no, seriously, though, uh, the person I couldn't resist doing is uh, the Apostle Paul. Now, many of you have heard about him many, many times. Uh, some of you, I mean, honestly, I hope some of you may have never heard that story before because, I mean, you're a prime audience we love to reach, but... Uh, the, the story of Paul just it, it fascinates it, he he has been arguably the most outside of Jesus obviously Jesus but as far as followers <laughs> it's kind of, of Jesus, important <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> outside of followers of Jesus he's technically been called the most famous Christian who's ever lived and the whole idea being that he started out, Fitting into the profile of one of the episodes we did just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Inquisition. And so you have the Apostle Paul starting out as an Inquisitor. That's what he was. He was for uh, the Orthodox Jewish religion of his day, looked at the brand new Jesus cult, this brand new group of people who were rising up around his name, and they thought it was disgusting. They thought it was blasphemy against God. They were offended by it. And here comes this young Pharisee, a Pharisee being, uh, think of uh, a, a modern-day rabbi, but two or three times more intense, more dedicated. They were they dedicated their entire lives to obeying every single jot and tittle to the fullest from the Old Testament. And so they were the main religious leaders of the day. And Paul is one of the best of the best. Um, he actually mentions some of the things that are known about him he was a Pharisee who was raised under the teaching of one of the greatest rabbis um, of that day, a man named Gamaliel. And uh, Paul sat at his feet and just soaked up everything he knew from this incredible teacher. I mean, people were bending over backwards to learn from Gamaliel. And Paul excelled to the very top of his game. He, I've, I've heard scholars mention that as far as an ancient Jewish alternative— uh, he basically had what we would consider a Ph.D. in his time. He was at the top of the list. He had all the credentials. 
He knew what he was doing. He honestly, if he had not changed his course in life, he probably would have gone straight to high priest at some point. But uh, he was rising quickly. And when the Jesus cult, there at the time it was known as The Way, shows up, and I'm talking this, the church is brand new. Uh, he witnessed the days of Pentecost when the church got launched. He was a contemporary with Simon Peter and John and James. And so Paul... Uh, known to the Jews as Saul with an S, he actually becomes the main inquisitor. He's the number one volunteer to route these people up, to gather them up, drag them away, and throw them into their version of a prison, which was literally just a, a muddy hole. Uh, and you would just live inside the hole, and if you died there, then so be it. And this, they considered this God's just punishment for having swayed away from the Scriptures. And so they didn't realize that God was doing something new in their lifetime. And so what Saul does is he starts out his whole journey as kind of the, the ultimate bad guy of the story. I mean, this guy is, um, we, we throw out pop culture references all the time, but it relates really well. He was literally Darth Vader. When he entered the, mu the room, the music started. He, when he entered the room, they knew what he was there for. They knew he was there to rout out a certain religious group. And so uh, nobody trusted him. Nobody wanted to be near him. If you were a follower of Jesus, you avoided him like the plague. Um, it wasn't that he would debate you. It wasn't that he would scream at you. He would simply Arrest calmly you. on the outside, <laughs> but he was furious on the inside. He would calmly uh, set up things so that you could be dragged away and eventually executed. But uh, as the story goes, and I'm talking not from necessarily from a biblical perspective when I say this, from a historical perspective, uh, Saul, they, they, we know him as Saul of Tarsus. It's where he lived and grew up and came from. Saul of Tarsus changed face overnight. And unless you go into what he says about it in the scriptures, you cannot explain what possibly happened. He's going from someone willing to rout and kill these these Christians drag them into prison, toss their lives away, and yet he is also he goes from someone who's willing to do that until so, to become someone who's willing to die for it. He says, "Not only was I wrong, but now I'm ready to die for this." And so he actually starts preaching the same thing that the cults are preaching, and it freaks people out. I mean, it, it was almost like seeing a ghost, even though he never died. Um, it, he would walk into the synagogues. Christians would be on edge because they would think, oh, great, here's Darth Vader. I mean, he's here to find out who we are, drag us off. And imagine you're, you're one of these people, you're in hiding. Um, you're worshiping Jesus when, you're, when the synagogue's backs are turned a little bit. That way you don't draw too much attention to yourself. And Paul, Saul, with an S, shows up, and he starts trying to convince you from the scriptures that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah, and he's, uh, honestly, uh, you probably, uh, honestly, they all did think that he was probably undercover trying to rat out the Christians. So they still didn't trust him. They didn't want to talk to him. They didn't want to get too close to him. And when the authorities in question, the people who hired him, uh, decide, realized that he this was not an act because they never put him up to it, when they started to real, it dawned on them after a while that th this was for real. He's not getting anything out of this, and he's still pursuing it. Then they decide they decide to kill him, and so they he goes from their employee to their target. And by then, he's gotten a few allies who help sneak him out of the city. And I want to say the rest is history, but there's so much more to say. Uh, I mean, he he goes from in our minds, we tend to think of him as. Um, a, one, there are many characters in Scripture that have a name change, and it signifies a change in their heart. Uh, one example, before I jump on to Paul again, is uh, Abraham in Genesis. He starts as Abram. I've heard of, I've also heard Abram, but when God makes his promise to, to him, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning God, uh, father of many, and that's a whole different story. But in other words, it's not new in Scripture, and so... When we look at Saul, we tend to love to think of this person's name changed by... People usually have that idea that his name was changed by God. But instead, what happened was Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, chose to transfer Saul's name to Paul. 
want to one to signify the geography of where he was, but also, as I said with Abraham, to signify his change of heart. And so uh, he actually had both names at once. Uh, to the Jews, he was Saul, and to the Gentiles at large, he was Paul with a P. And so the the interesting thing about him is that he, well, one of the many interesting things is that he had citizenship among the Jews. He had Jewish citizenship. He also had citizenship in Rome, Roman citizenship, which was very, very rare and gave you a lot of benefits up and above, above and beyond uh, most people who lived in the Roman Empire. And some scholars, they really debate hard where he probably got that from. Um, one very famous Bible scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, if I remember correctly, I believe he said he thinks that um, Paul's father may have done something in in service to the empire that actually granted his family that that uh, citizenship so that by the, time, by the time Saul was born, he'd already been granted it thanks to his father's service. But um, so you have Saul going out into the world as Paul to the Gentiles. And what he does is he preaches the story of Christ that he had been dragging people to prison for just recently. And um, as I said, you'd have to look in Scripture to get his testimony on it. But what can't be denied is he completely changed his allegiance overnight under full threat of death. I mean, he was the one who dragged them to death. He helped in the stoning of Stephen. He knew that this was not a bluff. I mean, one day he was the bluffer. He would have known if he was bluffing, and yet he switches sides and he knows full well they would kill him too, and yet he does it anyway. And when they ask him why, now history leaves it kind of a mystery, but scripturally they ask him why, and he simply says, I was on the way to a city in the Middle East called Damascus. I was going to drag away the Christians there, and all of a sudden Jesus himself appeared to me. And there's a whole long conversation where Jesus reveals, well, not only am I alive, but you know, every single Christian that you've condemned, you've also been condemning me because you condemn me through the Christians. What are you doing? And Paul has a massive, honestly, an, a massive scare. And that scare brings about a, a change in worldview. He realizes that the God that he has been, quote unquote, serving is actually the very God that brought about the events he's trying to stop. Um, there's a very famous question Jesus asks Paul, and it's rhetorical, but he asks him, you know, how hard is it to kick against the goads? And that's kind of a, a farmer's question, an agricultural question. But um, someone who's in agriculture who tries to kick against goads, they could, they would say that it's impossible. And so Jesus is rhetorically asking Paul, how do you think you're going to stop an unstoppable force? You're trying to catch the wind in your ha in your hand. You're trying to hold on to water. Yeah, you're doing all these things that you cannot do. Why are you trying? Don't fight me. And Paul joins him. And so the incredible thing about Paul, he was, honestly, he would be the, the first and uh, technically, spiritually, the most successful church planner who ever lived. He uh, traveled around with absolutely no foundation. Nobody had heard of Jesus. And if they had, he was a brand new name. It would be like someone you heard uh, the name on American Idol just last week. You'd never heard of him before brand new name to the public and so he goes around preaching this story some believe some don't some literally try to kill him like he knew they would and he gets out time and time again he never gives up he never stops they beat him they drag him to jail they do everything they can to break his body break his spirit break his will many of the letters he wrote that are now in the canonical new testament he wrote while in prison, wondering if he would be released this time or killed this time, never knowing. And uh, long story short, he went through three missionary journeys, possibly more, but we do know for sure that he ended up in prison. And when Nero was the emperor of Rome, he's the same emperor who also executed Simon Peter and I believe James and, and John, I think. Simon, uh, Paul was in Rome, and he was in prison yet again for the umpteenth time, and then one day he doesn't get out alive. They, Nero has him beheaded. And yet, despite his death, Paul is still one of the, the quickest, most recognizable names among Christians today. And if someone says that they don't recognize his name, that literally means that they haven't been reading their Bible. If they try to say that they don't really agree with Paul, he is in a very, very 
very cushy position as opposed to p- people like Billy Graham or John Piper. We could agree, disagree with something they say. If you disagree with something Paul says, they the, the Christian church has recognized what he wrote as literally God-inspired for 2,000 years. And God used him to break the mold among those people who had never, ever heard the name before. Because the challenge with Paul is Peter, James, all the others, they're preaching chiefly to the Jews because they were Jewish. It makes sense. The Jewish scriptures taught the people about the concepts of sin, what sacrifice is, what holiness is, that the heart is deceptive, that the world is fallen. All these things we take for granted as Christian teachings, they were Jewish teachings. And while God raised the nation of Israel, he was actually raising up a culture that would understand these things beforehand so that we would know what the Messiah was when he came. So they're teaching to a culture that is ready for this, what we would consider churched, quote-unquote, people who understand these concepts. He was jumping out on a limb and talking to people as if they were on another planet. They had a completely different foundation of morality, a completely different foundation of philosophy. Some people thought he was raving mad simply for suggesting that there was only one God. Um, Almost everyone thought he was raging mad for suggesting that a man would rise from the grave. And yet he was so successful because God himself blessed what Paul did. Paul was his instrument to start this chain reaction in the Gentile world. If there were no Paul, there would have been no real lasting surviving church outside of the Jewish nation, which was just a speck on the map, and Paul spread it all over the place. And so his story still resonates with us. If you are a believer and you don't happen to have Jewish descendants, then you are you then you are a product of Paul's ministry, period. You have him to thank. It's because he stepped out and risked his life that you are a believer at all, that you have the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus at all. And what people can't explain historically is why he would do this to glorify somebody else. He did it, he pulled he pulled out all the stops to glorify somebody else who, by their accounts, he'd never met before. By their accounts, Jesus was already dead and gone before Paul comes on the scene, and yet he changed everything and gave everything up for the sake of this Jesus. And yet he is literally, he, his pen is literally half of the New Testament. But that's the main reason I wanted to, to go through his story briefly was just because he is, other than Jesus, he, he and Jesus are literally the two foundations of the entire New Testament story and the gospel message. Jesus started the church and Paul started spreading the message. And everyone and every believer that came after that who was not Jewish came strictly from him. But uh, he's definitely one of my heroes of the faith, and I can't not read anything he says, and I can't read anything he does without feeling convicted by my lack of passion in comparison to him. You know, I mean, it was so real to him. He was so willing to go so far. But um, that is the story of Paul in a nutshell. You'll find his life story in Acts, and you'll find all of his teachings in the letters. Uh, that's from Romans all the way down to... Um, First, Second Timothy, First, Second Thessalonians. So that's a massive chunk of the New Testament. But uh, that was just an intro to him. If you've never heard of him, this is your chance to be introduced to him. If you have before, here's a chance just to sit back and kind of recapture the awe of you know what his life amounted to, thanks to God's intervention. And he's such a he's such a good, strong message of hope for people, because there are so many people who think, well, you don't know the things I've done, you don't mm-hmm. know how bad of a person I am, <clears throat> and you literally have um, Saul who persecuted people, murdered people, had entire probably communities of people killed and imprisoned, right? Mm-hmm. And God was able to use him mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. look at how he advanced the kingdom yeah, yeah. just through that one person mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and how you know how wicked he was to start off with mm-hmm. so i mean that should give everybody out there listening of it does not matter yeah how bad you think you are mm-hmm. absolutely you can still be used oh, to yeah. glorify the kingdom in ways you can't even fathom yeah oh yeah and i mean to kind of go th- run through the you know the aspects of Paul as a person I'm thinking about uh, we hear it all the time in church that God will use your gifting he'll use your personality he'll use your skills if you'll give it over to him and in hindsight 
and of course God already knew that's why he went after Paul and not Caiaphas but uh, you know in hindsight Paul of Tarsus was the perfect quote unquote perfect person to launch the non-Jewish Jesus movement in the ancient world think about he had dual citizenship so he was able to slip through some doors and some windows that nobody else could and there are plenty of stories in Acts where he does this if anybody else who's, who lacked that citizenship he would have been killed and Acts would have been cut short um, he was, like I said, when I started, <clears throat> he had like the PhD of theology at the time from a Pharisaical perspective. So he was a Pharisee who understands the law better than you do. <laughs> he is someone who has studied not only the law, but he went all the way and he studied all the poetry of the Greeks. He studied all the literature of the Romans. And so when people in the Jewish sect say, oh, look, a Roman. Let's throw the law at him. Boom, he knows the law better than them. And then the Romans see him, and they go, oh, look, a Jew. And they decide, let's just throw some Plato at him, some Aristotle. Boom, he knows the philosophers better than the Greek, the Romans do. And, they're like, and they ask themselves, who is this guy? Someone who dedicated himself to books. And then Jesus told him, okay, now take that, take that brain and move it out on two feet. <laughs> and so you've got someone with dual citizenship, someone who is very, very, very steeped in the literature and the knowledge of the time plus his personality really comes into play too because he was very and now some people would call him an extremist a zealot he was very very willing to sell out to what he believed in he was the guy who could not settle down he would be the guy like he would probably would have thought it was too restricting to have a wife and a family as far as we knew as far as we know he never got married he was always on the move he was never content to sit back and relax too much he had to do it. And it, we see that on both sides of his personality. Before he got saved, he was gung-ho. He was the first person to volunteer to, to slaughter these Christians. Then on the flip side, he becomes a Christian, and he's the, well, I will say the first one to volunteer. God called him, but God knew his heart. That's why he was called. He was the first person to go gung-ho to go to the farthest reaches of the, the, the universe hang out in a whole other galaxy if he had to and preach this Jesus. And he was and I mean there's even an episode where he gets into an argument with a friend. Someone deserts them and Paul thinks he shouldn't be allowed back in because he had one chance, he failed. Paul has no patience for this. And his friend is more of an encourager. He's more of a father figure. He says, "Let's forgive him like Jesus would. Let's bring him back in. Let's do this." Scripture never says which one of them were in the right, but without question Paul is the one who really wants to just beat him over the head and keep moving and I would argue that was possibly a character flaw that God still chose to use in his sovereignty and because now this is just my opinion and I'll share it as long as I'm clear that it's my opinion I think Barnabas was in the right he should have allowed John to come back maybe trust him with less if there was a chance he would bail again but but personally I think Paul was being too very too on the nose too legalistic but God still used it. And so this person, <laughs> gung-ho, they know what they're talking about. They're willing to go jumping into a flame with a water gun. It's almost like they're, they're all, it, they're, there's never a, a, a dull moment with him. There's never a calm moment with him. Uh, he was never afraid to burn himself out, and yet he would never burn out. <laughs> he, and, he was a and, machine. <laughs> and another a side, a side note also, later on, Paul admits that John Mark, which is the guy in question who abandoned them, later was, you know, redeemed in his eyes. Like, he saw him, I think, I can't remember if it's Galatians. I know it's one of his letters. It says basically John Mark is, you know, good teaching or a good teacher. So, in a way, like, <coughs> he might, in the beginning, might have really looked down on John Mark, but then as time, time moved forward, he proved himself and and paul was like okay i i have faith in this guy again yeah yeah he calls him a, a great companion in the faith and so you see him kind of coming full circle from where he was when he was younger and then kind of learning from his mistakes seeing john, john mark grow uh learning what it means to reconcile but uh that's the story of paul in a nutshell and all the things that made him so unique and so Sovereign to, sovereignly gifted for the, the role that God had for him. All right. And so now we're going to do uh, 
John the Baptist. Mm. And John the Baptist is a fascinating read. He's a fascinating person, fascinating individual. Um, he is considered the last prophet of the Old Testament, some would say, um, because Jesus you know, shows up. But before Jesus shows up and before he gets baptized, John is in the wilderness um, proclaiming that to repent and, and, and baptizing people. But even before that, I'm going to go back to kind of like his uh, upbringing and even before that is his uh, parents' story because his parents' story is fascinating too um, because um, there was Elizabeth and Zachariah, no relation to me, um, shared the same name, but that's about it. Um, but Elizabeth and, and Zachariah uh, were not able to have children. And they, you know, they were married, they enjoyed each other's company, but they never had any kids. Um, and then one day he's serving, Zechariah is serving in a temple, and the angel comes down and tells him that, hey, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child. And you're name him John. And... Instead of going, oh, God did something miraculous, you know, he looks, you know, like he looked back and could have seen how Abraham and Sarah and me like, oh, that's awesome and great. But instead, he goes, me and my wife are too old. We can't have kids. And because of that, he was struck mute for his lack of faith. Um, not a very high moment for Zechariah. Um, so, but still... Um, God moved, God spoke through the, uh, angel and, um, he was, uh, John was, or excuse me, uh, Zechariah was made mute, but then he goes home, some time passes and it finds out Elizabeth is with child. Again, they, these two people were older people, probably in their late forties, early fifties. She was definitely beyond childbearing age. So you're definitely looking at that time period. And she ends up getting pregnant. And what does Zachariah do? There's a debate on, on as far as like what the child was to be named. The people wanted some wanted him to name him after his, you know, father, Zachariah, but he's like, No, he wrote on a tablet, no, his name is to be John. And the second that he acknowledged that is the time that God opened up his voice to speak again because before that he'd been struck mute um, from the, his time of hanging out with the angel and the angel telling him and him not believing. So Zechariah was allowed to speak for the first time in however many months, and and he praised God. And moving forward, uh, a little side note, um, a, a side note to the side note, um, Jesus and John the Baptist John the Baptist are cousins. John the Baptist is a couple months older than Jesus, but um Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. So there there's a, a little bit of a tie in there. That's where that's how you know John and Jesus probably even maybe even met before before the anointed time and who knows. I mean, I mean that's speculation there, but Anyway, moving forward, so John is in the the uh, at the Jordan and he's baptizing and preaching, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, you know, and he's like, "Behold, the Lamb of God," and and um, one of the most amazing moments that anybody you know who talks about ministry uh, or talks about preaching about how, you know, our ministry is God's ministry and not our own. And um, John makes an amazing statement because at one point, Jesus' disciples are baptizing and he's teaching and John the Baptist is as well. But John the Baptist is starting to lose followers and Jesus is starting to gain followers. And John's disciples are like, hey, you see what's going on here? And he makes the most beautiful statement. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors. I can't tell you how many encouragements that I've heard of that where he was willing to just lay down his ego, lay down his quote-unquote right, his authority, and lay it at Jesus' feet. That is an awesome testimony. And that's one of the reasons one of the reasons why I, I, I think so highly of John. And then moving forward, um, after this event, later um, John is arrested. John gets arrested because he preaches against Herod's actions. Herod was the ruler, kind of like the puppet king, if you would imagine, of the, the nation of Israel. He was underneath the Roman Empire, of course. Um, but he was having, um, I, I don't know if it's his sister or if it was his sister-in-law, but basically after his brother died, um, Herod married her. And so that was sort of like an incestual type relationship that shouldn't exist, basically. And, and John, John the Baptist called him out on it, saying, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Don't do that. Um, so Herod had him arrested and and um, it's it's amazing because Jesus, I think it's in the book of John, um, talks about how, like um, he's in the middle of teaching and preaching, and all of a sudden one of John's followers comes up to him and's like and basically asks the question, "Are you the one, or should we be looking for another?" Basically asking Jesus, "Is he truly the Messiah, or should we be looking for another?" Now, the significance of that is, you know, at one point in early on in Jesus' ministry, in the very beginning when they were both ministering together or, you know, in relatively close proximity, um, you had John saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was convinced. But then he got arrested and maybe just maybe some despair happened. Maybe the Messiah wasn't happening the way he thought you know what have you he ended up showing his humanity and was asking jesus the question are you the one or should we be looking for another and jesus basically answered i am he and then this is the awesome part about jesus um is when john was having his moment of doubt was having his moment of struggle jesus defended john he stepped up and said what did you guys go out to see? You went out to see a prophet, and I tell you, he was a great. Basically, just kind of like reiterating the fact that you know he was doing what God called him to do, and yet even in that, um, he still struggled. He still doubted, and I think that is a representation of people of us. You know, we have our high moments where you know God does something miraculous in our life, or or we see it. But then we also have the moments where we're in the valley and and you're just you're holding on to your faith by, you know, you know, basically basically God's holding on to you um, and 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 you don't even see how you can get through it. And yet God brought him through that um, and just kind of fast forward a little bit. And there towards um, the end of John the Baptist's life, um, he actually was martyred. I don't know if you'd call him martyr, but he was executed um, for um, basically, uh, long story short, uh, there was a feast that was happening in Herod's um, palace, and Herodotus, Herodotus, I think that's the name, I can't remember the name of the, the uh, lady, but anyways, her daughter came out and danced um, really magnificently. And, and Herod basically said, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, just whatever it is, just I'll, I'll give it to you. Just tell me what you want. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So Herod was forced then to execute John the Baptist. So that was the end of John the Baptist's uh, earthly ministry. Um, but, uh, again, I, I just I'm, I'm amazed by you know, just the scope of the things that happened in his life, the highs and the lows, the, um, the, the moments where he, he, he sat potentially beside Jesus and talked to Jesus and spent time with him. 
knowing that this guy was his cousin, but yet still saw him as unworthy to even unstrap his sandals because um, he makes that statement. Um, and he goes from that, from that awesome, yes, I'm going to do God's will to that, that deep, dark moment where he was struggling, and yet Jesus still defended him, still loved him, still cared for him. And that's something that we can take away um, is, you know, I take away from it is even in those moments where, you know, you're in the valley or I'm in the valley, God's still there and Jesus is still defending us. Um, the enemy might be sitting there going, oh, look, he did this, he did that, she did this, she did that, yada, yada, yada. And we might feel that guilt if we allow it to, if we allow the enemy to whisper in our ears. But Jesus is there defending us. He's our shield. And if we would just stop listening to those those whispers of the enemy and instead listen to what God says about us, then we can move forward. Not that it makes those the things that we might experience easy, but it is that encouragement, that constant understanding that, you know, these biblical figures had their great moments and then they also had their valley moments. They you and you see it in the scriptures, you see it even in the Old Testament. I mean, you had Moses, you had Isaiah. There's numerous prophets that were literally he hearing God's voice and through circumstances that were going on in their life and their ministries and they wished for death. And like it's one thing to say that, you know, like, but whenever you know the God of the universe is listening and could grant the wish immediately to take out, take you out, and instead he doesn't, it's just mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. And it's just a testimony that these people, John, whether it be John the Baptist or these other prophets, Moses, whoever, all these peoples had ups and downs, and they struggled they they maybe they didn't doubt who knows maybe some of them did but at the end of the day they did what god told them to do and, that, and that's the encouragement i have whenever i look at john the baptist he's not a perfect man but none of none of us are except for jesus and that's the thing that we i look to about that and that's what gives me the encouragement and hope to realize that you know tomorrow's a new day and if i jack this day up tomorrow's a new day and let's move forward for the kingdom, for the gospel, for the ministry of um, reconciliation, the loss to the uh, to Jesus, because that's what it's about. So to move into a third figure to wrap this this up tonight, uh, we decided to throw a little Old Testament in there. Both our figures first, Paul and John the Baptizer, these were uh, New Testament figures. So let's throw a little Old Testament in there. Um, Old Testament, if you've listened to the show and you didn't already know, you would learn from pre previous episodes, but the Old Testament is basically the Jewish Bible. The New Testament is the Christian, quote unquote, quote unquote, sequel to the Bible. So the Moses is the Bible quintessential part Bible part two. The the quintessential uh, figure of Judaism is Moses, and he's the foundation of uh, technically the the entire nation of Israel itself. He's the foundation of the Passover holiday. He's the foundation of the law. Uh, God gave all of these to him, but as far as human figures go, he is definitely the quintessential one. Um, arguably, even above Abraham. Now, their lineage came from Abraham. Their identity identity came through Moses. God used them both in different ways. Now, the story of Moses is fascinating because I mentioned Paul being a man of two worlds, and so is Moses. So, uh, the situation he was born into is basically a situation in which the Jewish people were living in the nation of Egypt, um, they became a threat to Pharaoh at first. Uh, one of their numbers, named Joseph, was really good friends with the Pharaoh until that Pharaoh passed away and was replaced by a new one. And this new Pharaoh actually looked around at the Jews that had come into Egypt with Joseph, their family member, and he looks around and he goes, Oh no, these people are a threat. They're multiplying like crazy. Uh, they're very successful. They're still enjoying all that wealth that my uh, my the, my uh, predecessor, the previous pharaoh, gave to them. These these people have really got to be crushed, and so he actually decreed that those people would become slaves. 
And so for centuries, they were slaves in Egypt. They were people who were underneath the Pharaoh's hard fist. And one thing the Pharaoh actually decided to do, he passed this into law, was that uh, when it came to the Jews, if it was a boy, you would kill it. And it was literally just a form of eugenics. He was trying to filter the population. He was trying to prevent too many babies from coming into the world that were Jewish. And so when Moses is born, the plan is to kill Moses because he happens to be a boy. And his mom cracks a plan. She hides him in a boat, allows him to float down the Nile River, which is that massive river that goes through the heart of Egypt. And as Providence would have it, Pharaoh's own daughter finds the baby and adopts it. And so all's well that ends well. She adopts the baby, and he, become, oh, he immediately becomes a prince. And she actually chooses one of the Jewish women to be a a a, a handmaid for her, a, kind of a, a a babysitter for the infant while she's busy. And this happens to be his own biological mother. So he's he's raised in the bo- best of both worlds. And I mentioned about how God will build you into the person you're meant to be. Paul had all those credentials for him, and even his character flaws were used for the glory of Christ. But Moses, he he was built up to be the, the perfect candidate for this time of history as well. He was raised, uh, even though he was Jewish, he was raised as an Egyptian uh, noble. He was one of the royal family. Uh, he grew up in a world where he was he would have been instructed in all the best literature. He would have been taught how to speak well. He would have been uh, taught how to become familiar with all the, the mythological gods of the pantheon. And and just as a side note, as much as I love the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston and all that, he knew he was Jewish. Whereas in the movie, um, there's like there's this great huge plot twist that he finds out that he's Jewish. In reality, everybody knew, even the Pharaoh himself knew that uh, that Moses was Jewish. There was nobody who didn't know that he was Jewish, which was kind of the irony. Because not that long ago, they're like, hey, make a decree, kill all the baby boys. And then there's here's this one who, oh, we're going to take care of and we're going to make it be our our uh, political face, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the two things against that idea, the, the idea that, that Moses did not know. One, uh, even though the, the, the ethnicities would have looked very similar, there were still very real visible differences between the Egyptians and the Semites. And so anybody who looked Moses in the face would have immediately known this is not an Egyptian. <laughs> and <laughs> yep. and uh, if I remember correctly, the Egyptians used to portray Semites with red hair in their statues to portray the differences they saw. And so anybody would have known this is a Semite, this is Moses. And uh, as Zach pointed out, the timing would have Anybody with a brain who can structure logic would think, oh, this must be a baby that escaped death from the Jews. He's obviously Jewish. And, uh, you know, just the, the fact that he was raised among them, um, it, it could have been a political move. Now, I think Pharaoh's daughter really wanted to keep him, but I believe it does not say this in Scripture, but I, I, I speculate Pharaoh himself may have allowed it yeah. in order to have, if you can give the Jews a token mm-hmm. in the palace, they'll keep them quiet for longer. Mm-hmm. He he probably, that was one of his biggest fears, it seems, was that these people would finally rise up and riot. That's why he tried so hard to keep them down, keep them crushed, because he was so outnumbered by them. And so you have J- Moses growing up, learning both, both worlds. And one day, he actually witnesses an Egyptian uh, mishandling a Jewish slave. And Moses, being Jewish, just flies into a rage. He sees that as a slap in his own face. And uh, we talk about the fact that, you know, there are no biblical heroes in the fullest sense except Jesus. Everyone has their flaws. Moses begins his journey with cold-blooded murder. I mean, it was manslaughter. He jumps on the Egyptian. Um, I'm sure he, who knows, I think royalty may have even been trained how to fight because he, he laid that Egyptian guard out. And he, he all of a sudden... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Six or seven blows straight to the head. Mortal Kombat. Finish him. Fatality. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm adding to the Bible. It's the Amplified Bible and podcast. That's bad. Don't do that. That's terrible, Robert. We need to do that. We did rabbit hole, and I'll go right back to the story. Yeah. Do Genesis to Revelation and just ad lib as we go. But anyway, don't do that. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, that Robert man. guy, he's a heretic. Yeah. Oh, I would probably say something. I'd make it about halfway and then turn the church against me. But uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but uh, in all... circumstances, Bright sunny day. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> That makes it all the more miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, back to the serious side of the story. Moses really does kill this Egyptian. And he panics and he hides the body. But... <laughs> But the, it in the sand. And the, yeah, and that's the sad thing. He hides it in sand, which blows away at the merest bit of dirt. So these other Egyptians are walking by, and every last bit of this dead body's been uncovered by the wind. <laughs> and they and everybody knows Moses did it. He did it in front of witnesses. It never says he waited for the Egyptian to be alone. He jumped the guy in front of all the slaves. <laughs> and he was the Jewish guy in the royal palace. No, He's not going to blend in. <laughs> and they all say, oh, yeah, it was that Jewish guy, Moses. And so, of course, Pharaoh finds out, and he says, okay, having a token was fine, but once he starts killing killing my soldiers, it's time to, to end his life. Moses panics and flees the country. And he it says he was 40 when he ran from Egypt. He spends another 40 years in hiding in a land called Midian. He gets, uh, jo- uh, he gets work as a, she- a shepherd. Um, a complete difference from where he was as an Egyptian. And so you see Moses slowly being molded throughout his life. He learns all about Egyptian culture. He lives as one of them. Then when the time comes, he's got the same amount of time, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the land of Midian, to really uh, reduce his ego, to really soften him out and humble him. Now he's living as his ancestors did when they were on the move in the days of Abraham and Isaac as nomads. And the day comes when Moses is 80. He was about 40 when he attacked the Egyptian. He was about 40 when the next phase of his life starts. He's in Midian watching the sheep at night, and a bush catches on fire. And the amazing thing that catches his eye is the bush keeps burning, and the scripture says that it never actually got consumed. It just kept burning and burning like a man-made lamp. And so Moses goes to take a look at it, and all of a sudden he hears this massive voice coming out of the fire. It was The fire was only there to get Moses' attention, and now that he has it, God speaks. And so it's, it, honestly, I can't speculate. It's possible Moses may have kind of had a, a, a kind of a, a polytheistic view being raised by Egyptians he probably had a lot of respect for the Jewish God but he probably couldn't be able to say that he was a, a, a sincere worshiper of only the Jewish God there was too much influence around him in favor of Ra and Osiris and Estreth and so he was probably kind of pushing all these together the way the Romans did until that night he meets the God of his ancestors full-on for the first time now it's a relationship and uh, this God tells him to go into Egypt and liberate his people now this story is so famous in pop culture you usually have to quote the line you know let my people go and they already know let what it's my about. people go let my people go and so Moses makes every excuse in the book he literally lies to God he says I'm terrible at speaking I, I mumble I stumble uh, the book of Acts, coming back to that really quick, it mentions that Moses was mighty in word and speech. He had been raised as a royal, <laughs> taking the best rhetoric classes offered in that day and time. And so God knew it. Moses knew it. He thought God would never notice. <laughs> hey, by the way, I can't really speak. Yeah, I'm going to call that a lie. I can name all your teachers. <laughs> but I gave you the gift of speech. Yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, God accommodates everything until finally Moses finally agrees to go. God has to get a little angry with him, but he agrees to go. He stands before Pharaoh, and he delivers that famous line. And it's never like it is in the Charleston Heston movie, Let My People Go. He never says it just that way, but... 
He does in my mind, okay? <laughs> Head cannon. But uh, he does say, uh, please allow the, uh, my people to come out into the wilderness so that we can have a worship service to our God. And Pharaoh basically refuses to do this, I mean, for many reasons. He doesn't want to give uh, even an inch to the Jews. If they, he, He's afraid if he allows this, they'll get even a, a, a speck of independence. It's going to turn out badly for him. And so Moses, through uh, God, through Moses, begins to display a lot of signs to to Pharaoh to convince him that, you know, this God means business. Um, he turns Moses's rod, his walking stick, into a serpent. He um, uh, allows Moses's hand to become leprous as a sign to Pharaoh. Um, he and go through the whole story. He sends ten plagues upon Egypt. Uh, and each plague uh, directly attacks the powers of one of the deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And so whoever was in charge of the Nile River, Yahweh outdid them and changed the river the way he wanted it to be. He turned the water into blood. Uh, he brought frogs. He brought gnats. He brought darkness. And long story short, he finally brings about the death of every firstborn non-Jewish creature in all of Egypt, human and animal. And that's when Pharaoh finally's had enough. His own son died, and he said, and he finally tells Moses, "Okay, your people can go." They pack up. They collect wealth from the Egyptians. They're all so eager to see the the Jews leave by now. They will literally pack up and uh, give provisions to Israel if they'll just leave. And and I would like to add just for the second, and I'll let Robert take back over. Um, in that, there's also Egyptians who left with the Israelites. And uh, that's sometimes uh, a detail that gets glossed over. Um, but they, you know, they were involved in this. They saw the plagues. They saw the, the miracles taking place and, and how, like Robert said, it was an attack on each of their former deities and they re recanted those beliefs and in favor of following Yahweh, the one true God. So as a point in references, like, here was an early example that Yahweh wasn't just for the Jews. I mean, there was a point with the Jews, and there was a reason for the Jewish people and things of that nature. But God was also for the people who were of different ethnicities. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, Scripture is flooded with stories of Gentiles that see what the Jewish God can do, and he, he touches those hearts as well. And so they go out into the desert. Um, if you know the story, Pharaoh tries one last time to bring them back. And uh, God parts the Sea of Reeds, and they pass through it. Pharaoh is overcome by the water, and his entire army is swept away and drowned. But that finally frees the nation up to get where they're headed, to be where they're going to be. Now, due to sin, which is another long story, but I'll cut that short. Due to sin, they wander in the wilderness. Uh, by wilderness, I mean that little piece of land that we know as Saudi Arabia next to Egypt. Um, Israel is directly to the north of it. They wandered that desert for 40 years. And so they went right back to the no-bad life. And without God directly intervening, they all would have died there. Um, no, no resources. They're all just left to themselves camping in the middle of a wasteland. And so while they are wandering, they go to a mountain known as Mount Sinai. And, uh, You'll see a lot of churches named Mount Sinai simply because it's such a famous location in, in Bible geography. But Moses goes to the top, <clears throat> and he stays up there for 40 days and 40 nights uh, to reflect this. The constant use of 40 is times of change, times of uh, you know one era being replaced by another. And so Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. When he comes back down, he has the, the Jewish law. He's got the Ten Commandments. He's got um, all the other commandments uh, dictated so that the nation will know what to do with themselves when they become the official nation of Israel. It's when their whole identity is crafted one law at a time, one detail at a time. And he goes down and he finds his own family and all the Jews worshiping a golden statue because they all assumed that Moses was probably going to stay up there forever if he hadn't died by now because they couldn't see him from the bottom. And Moses completely freaks out. He destroys the idol. Um, he, he, it literally says that he breaks down the idol, 
uh, puts the powder into water and forces them to drink it so that they never, ever get tempted to do something like that again. But in his anger, he accidentally destroyed the original Ten Commandment tablets, and God had to replace them. And so it turns into this big dramatic thing. But at the end of this long, tortuous 40, 40 years, the entire generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt have passed away except for three people. Uh, Joshua, jo- uh, j- uh, Caleb. Caleb, my mind went blank. <laughs> I started to say none, but that was the, the, the father of, of Joshua. Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. And uh, Moses, due to some some one of his own sins, and we that could be a podcast episode in itself. I won't go down that rabbit hole right now. That would blow your minds up. <laughs> but um, basically, he has a time of disobedience, and God chastises him for it and says that because of what you've done, I'll let you see the promised land where I'm taking you, the home that's going to be Israel's forever, but I won't let you set foot in it. And so... Moses goes to the top of a mountain at the very edge of the promised land. He looks out over it, and he passes away. And it says that none of Israel ever buried him. Uh, His body seemed to vanish, and they took that as God himself burying Moses. And so the, the nation under Joshua, he's now the leader. He led them into the promised land. They took possession of it, and they became the nation of Israel. And the rest of the Old Testament is all about Israel's history as a nation, but Moses became the name associated with being Jewish. He became, you know, the giver of the law. Uh, it says there was no one in the entire history of Israel like Moses again. Uh, no one ever rose up with that much prestige, that much humility, uh, that much closeness to God. He was closer to God than any of the prophets were. And so that is just someone that, and even though he had his flaws, uh, you know, this is somebody who, you know, genuine like Paul, genuinely gave everything he had to God in the era that he lived, in the, the pre-Christian era that God was moving, and he was part of that, and he was willing to give give up everything he had for it. And one thing is, um, and this is always, a str- whenever we study Moses, or I read, you know, Exodus or Deuteronomy or any of those uh, books that he wrote, um, one thing that always fascinates me is <clears throat> there was one of those times whenever um, the Israelites were basically, uh, and it might even be the Mount Sinai incident, I'm not sure exactly, but um, basically Israel's sinning, and God's like, I'm done. I'm done with them. I'll wipe them out. And Moses pleads on their behalf, behalf and he says, kill me instead. And and God's like, I will spare them because you basically interceded for them. Um, and so uh, there was an instance where, because God's like, you know, what, I'm going to kill them and I'll raise up a great nation through you. Because that was one thing that the Israelites did numerous times throughout the journey to the promised land is they tested God and tried his patience. Um, and it's one thing to ask the question, but it's another to whenever it becomes like blatant disobedience and rebellion and that becomes like the heart of what you're saying or what you're doing and i think a lot of times the israelites were guilty of that which is why you see god react in such a way sometimes because he was just you know you know we don't want to think about it but there is a line in the sand when you cross that line god's like i'm done and and you know yes God is long-suffering, and he is patient, and all those things, absolutely. But there is a line, <laughs> and and if you're not careful, you cross that line. And just like in the book of Revelation, there'll come a day when this world crosses that line and judgment comes. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, but... Uh, <laughs> not really. It's actually really bad. <laughs> really bad stuff. Good <laughs> theological stuff. But... Uh, <laughs> But I mean, uh, to to land the plane on the episode tonight, we've you know you have three figures, uh, two from the New Testament, one from the Old. Uh, two of them knew Jesus; they saw him personally. Moses, without realizing it, met Jesus if he is God the Son. But he knew Yahweh in a time way before the Messiah was going to be, and yet they all, in their flaws and in their their victories, they they just show us what it can mean when you're willing to give up 
uh, your plans, your comforts in order to chase something so much bigger than yourself. Um, John the Baptist is known only for the fact that he was preaching in the desert and allowed himself to be locked up in prison. Paul is known only for uh, traveling and preaching Jesus in a world where it was wildly unpopular and going to prison, and both men lost their head. Moses never lost his head, and yet he gave up everything that he had instead. He gave up everything that he had materialistically. Um, it says in Hebrews, um, it mentions in chapter 11, uh, he's, it says that he counted it more blessed to be among God's own people than to keep all the treasures of he- uh, to the treasures of Egypt that would have been his by birthright. And so he gives up all these things just to be equated with God's people starving in the middle of the desert. And and I would just like to throw in, like, I mean, we have no idea of knowing what, like, if if, th- if these things hadn't played out this way, if he would have, he could have potentially been Pharaoh. And, I mean, we don't know because uh, it obviously didn't play out this way. But if if she adopted him, then he could have been Pharaoh and he could have done numerous things for the people of Israel in that way. But that's not the way God intended it to happen. That wasn't the way, you know, and and maybe that's part of it. Maybe that was him thinking that he was above the law, above the law, and that's why he killed the Egyptian or something. I mean, who knows? We don't we don't know. But I mean, it's just an interesting thought. It really is, and, and um, I'll I'll point this out, <clears throat> and then we'll plant land the plane on the the biography episode tonight. But the irony being, if Moses had stayed his hand, if he kept going on that trajectory that he was on. If he had allowed himself to become, uh, what do you call it, promoted until the point that he was the Pharaoh, that would have been, in his eyes, that probably would have been the best possible career path for him. One of the Jewish slave people who become Pharaoh, they would have been very proud of that. They would have talked about that. He definitely would have raised uh, the Jewish people's lot in life. But I really don't think that his name would have been remembered as well if if he had become Pharaoh. And that's the ironic thing. is The man with the most power tends to have the least mention. And so you have all these other Pharaohs. Um, if you stop you know, a random uh, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, depending on you know, where, what, if they've ever been ch- to church or exposed to any of the stories, I'm still very confident that many, many more of them would be able to tell you that they've heard of the name Moses than they would be able to tell you that they've heard the name Ramses before. Uh, You know, King Tut, Tutankhamun. Um, Their names are known, but that's still only two in the massive ocean of pharaohs that have been. And, you know, only the most detailed scholars could give you the names of all those pharaohs. But Moses... Is has been a household name for hundreds and hundreds of years. People have, uh, you know, wanted to be associated with Moses. People have wanted to have Moses on their team. Uh, much the same we've talked about with Jesus on earlier episodes. People have wanted Moses on their side because Moses is known as the man who gave everything. And people raise Moses up as this role model. And he was a man who gave up what anybody at the time would have considered his best possible career plan. They thought they would have thought he would have amounted to absolutely nothing once he, once he was uh, condemned to you know wandering the desert uh, alone or even with the Israelites, you know by all accounts they should have been just another colony that you know faded off into history. Maybe we would have found their their uh, archaeological remains. We would have found some places where they stayed the night, but there, it would be a mystery of where they disappeared to. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where uh, the the English colony of Roanoke disappeared without a trace. Now, if the Israelites had not had something divine on their side, that most likely would have been the case. They would have faded out. And yet, um, you could argue that all of Western civilization hinges on the nation of Israel that rose up in the Middle East. And the name that is associated to them is their very identity I would argue even up and above Abraham is the name of Moses because it's so tied to the law, and the law is so tied to what it means to be Jewish. But uh, all that to say, uh, when we give ourselves over to Christ and we're willing to you know, give up the what, what anybody else would consider the best parts of life in order to pursue him first and foremost, one, you never know how far 
God would be willing to use you. It's only limited by his own plan, desire, and power. And, you know, two, we not only do we not know, you know, just how far he's willing to go, but, I mean, just remember that, you know, a legacy can be everything at the end of the day. It's what you are remembered for. So will you have a legacy like a Moses or a Paul or John the Baptist, someone who gave it all at the right time and made the right choice for the right person? And by the right person, of course, being Christ. Or would you have a legacy like Pontius Pilate? He's only known for one thing, too, and it's not nearly as pretty. Hmm. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Um, Where are we heading uh, next episode? So next episode, we are riding the biography train at least one more time. But to add thing to shake things up, uh, this episode's focused on biblical figures, people we still believe are historical, but they're in the pages of Scripture. Next episode, we're going to be jumping on some names from history outside the pages of Scripture. When the canon ends, the world still kept going. So we're going to pick some names from, from the history books. Well, thank you, uh, Zach and Robert. And to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us, uh, joining us again for this episode. Thank you. And uh, yeah, like I said, visit our Facebook, um, Achieving Christian Thought uh, podcast, and uh, our website, theactpod.com. And thank you all. We'll uh, be with you next time. Bum, bum.